Hello DER Task Force. Season two of the podcast is finally here. I'm Russell Wilcox, a co-producer and editor of the podcast. Today's episode is all about the Texas power outages. We never actually did a meetup specifically focused on this topic, but we did participate in way too many clubhouse events. Our clubhouse presence has died down a bit, but the meetups are as strong as ever. So make sure you stay tuned with upcoming events on our website, dertaskforce.com, and just follow our Twitter and you'll see what's going on. This episode today is a fun one focused on resilience, markets, and plenty of crazy ideas that may just be the future of energy or an endless battle for or against capacity markets. I'll let James take it away. Given the sensitivity of vol, value of lost load, to a variety of specific factors, such as customers' consumption profile, a region's macroeconomic and climatic attributes, as well as the types of outages experienced slash examined, this report does not and cannot provide a single vol estimate for the ERCOT region at this time for purposes of establishing the economic impact of rotating outages at the distribution level due to inadequate operating reserves. If I had to guess, that's somebody at the Texas PSC or PUC or whatever they call it in Texas. Close. Uh, Colleen? Is it just ERCOT talking in the third person about ERCOT? (laughs) You guys are on the right track. So on June 17th, 2013... London Economics International LLC was retained by the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, ERCOT, to determine a value of lost load, vol, in aggregate and by customer class as it relates specifically to rotating outages caused by insufficient operating reserves in the ERCOT region. So this is a, a briefing paper prepared for ERCOT by some random consulting firm. Was that like post- the 2011 outages it must have been because that was 2013 so literally like in the paper they're like we can't come up with vol so if you go to the operating reserve demand curve for ERCOT there's like ERCOT has a sort of a deck like a primer on how that functions and in it it just says the value of nine thousand dollars per megawatt hour has been administratively set And it comes from this random (laughs) consulting paper from 2013, in which they state we can't actually find a number that makes sense. You know, when it just feels right. (laughs) Well, before we go any further and talk about the operating reserve curves of ERCOT and the value of lost load, if you haven't guessed, to kick off season two of the DER Task Force podcast, we are talking about the electricity crisis in Texas that happened last month. Now we're going to get into all of it. We're going to talk about what happened and why it happened and what the consequences of it were. And we'll touch on a bunch of the different debates that are being had. But I think we have an overarching view on this because we're, we're sort of trying to think about what we can learn this, not just rehash the debates. And in talking about Texas, we, we came to the view that overall, what this represents is energy resilience is going to be extremely important moving forward, both in how our energy system is evolving and how climate change is impacting it. We're not taking it nearly seriously enough. So that's going to be the overarching theme of today's episode. And I think we'll attack that theme uh, through all the different different lenses and, and elements of the Texas discussion. Maybe as a starting point, let's talk quickly about James's quote. What the hell is the value of lost load? What is that? 
I'm going to try to reduce this. So if it's too simple, I apologize, but let's try and put it in English. If we don't have sufficient supply, operating reserves, as they're called, like we don't have enough power being generated, theoretically, it's the value of instituting blackouts, meaning the value, if I'm a business or a home or an industry and my power gets cut off, it's the value per unit of energy that is lost as a result because I don't have power. It sounds like this is sort of the, this like academic value of the, the social cost of a blackout. Is that kind of what we're saying right. with this idea? I mean, not, not even really social. Like they try and make it economic. And what's interesting about the paper is they use like a few different methodologies. One is revealed preference. So it's like customer expenditures on backup generators, stuff like that as one methodology for determining it. Another is a stated choice. So it's a, a customer inferring from interviews, a customer's willingness to pay. Macroeconomic. So you look at like GDP divided by electric consumption and then case studies, looking at like actual times where there are outages and trying to determine the value lost as a result. So from the study, they produce a whole range of values using different methodologies. So where does 9,000 fit in that range? Right. So we're, we're getting to the good stuff here. They do it by kind of customer segment. So residential, non-residential, commercial, industrial, small commercial, large commercial. And basically here they have for residential, $1,800, small CNI, $42,000, large CNI, $30,000 per megawatt hour. And I think like you know, when you look at the ultimate table, I'm scrolling through the paper right now, the lower end of the range is like 9,000. So I think they determine some aggregate number. It's like 9,000 between it's a 13,000, but a lot of the market segments are like $19,000, $40,000. So the price cap that we set in ERCOT is determined by this sort of administratively set by ORDC's, uh, you know, ERCOT's own admission value, which when you go back to the original study, most of the end users have wildly higher <laughs> numbers that they report as being the actual value that they'd lose by losing power. It doesn't feel very Texas to like set an academic value that constrains the entire market. That just, does, that just doesn't feel Texas to me. But it is like 4X the value they found for residential. So, <laughs> I mean, residential, like what if uh, your heating goes off and like your grandma dies of the cold, you know, like, what, I how, mean, and, how and like that happens, right? And it doesn't sound like, it doesn't sound like they included like loss of life as part of their economic um, value, which is like a whole other debate in right. the economic sphere. So why is this important? Like what, what does value of lost load do or impact? Well, so here's where it gets kind of crazy. And this is literally, I've been slacking Ben Karen uh, furiously because he's way smarter than all of us on this stuff. So I'm, I'm whatever, this is telephone and I'm probably butchering it. But it interestingly, like the way it works in the market is it considers the amount of capacity on the system. This is a quote from Ben operating to calculate the likelihood that an outage occurs and then multiplies by the vol to come up with the scarcity adder. So actually like stuffed into LBMP prices in Texas is this scarcity adder determined from the vol. 
meaning like it's almost he calls it like a almost like a shadow capacity payment so when they look at the demand curves for new generation to be built and then they look at the reserve margin and then kind of the spread between where they want the reserve margin to be and then the operating margins of the power plant the ERCOT deck calls it the missing money problem because like not enough stuff is going to get built based on like the normal demand curves so they use this uh scarcity adder through vol as in like this will be load that goes offline or whatever that you know price responsive load there's all these different categories of things that'll show up in lieu of a generator to like make sure that the reserve margin is adequate so basically like factoring in what would shut off when prices go above a certain right. threshold right then like compensating that load for the value that it has will help avoid rolling outages if we did the math right but that didn't happen <laughs> did it <laughs> so i think no it did not you did can not look happen. at the original study and say hmm this is like kind of weird we just wound up with nine thousand bucks a megawatt hour and then you can also look at how much load like stayed online when prices were at that value and understand that there's something not working from a market perspective maybe uh your point that obviously this did not work is a good time to just quickly go over what did happen here I'm sure most of the people listening pretty much know, but I think it might be useful to sort of just set a quick base of understanding here and throw out a few numbers that uh, contextualize this. Do you want to do that? Talk about supply and demand here. (laughs) So when supply meets demand, no. (laughs) Uh, So basically what happened is in mid-February, I mean, really the whole U.S. went into deep freeze based on, you know, climate change changing some of the like Arctic winds. We're not going to go into the science of it, but (laughs) point is it got real cold in Texas. And what started happening where energy Twitter first started really freaking out was on like the 12th, 13th, 14th of February, prices were rising. We were hitting that $9,000 cost cap. Everyone was like, we're going to have this huge winter peak well forecasted above what we ever thought we'd see in Texas in the winter. And that was driven a lot by like a lot of electric heating with homes that don't have a lot of insulation, all these sort of things happening. And then a peak of about 69 gigawatts happened, which was, you know, like three gigawatts higher than the previous winter peak. And then at, you know, early morning on February 15th, they lost 40% of their supplies. So about 34 gigawatts went offline. That is like just a lot. An unimaginable amount of power. It's a crazy amount of power to go offline. And it went offline pretty quickly. And so assuming most of our listeners know this, but supply and demand do have to match in real time on the electric grid. Otherwise the grid can fail and starting it back up can take literal weeks to months. Um, So what ERCOT did was basically start shedding load, AKA like turning customers power off. And so over like four and a half million homes and businesses were without power. I mean, over a hundred people died. I feel like that's an important thing for us to remember, like there was actual loss of life as a result of this, both through exposure, carbon monoxide, fires. And it really showed that (laughs) there were, I mean, we'll go into the factors that happened, but like 
basically there was this crazy loss of supply and part of what that was driven by was like lack of planning, which, you know, would you have had better planning if you had a higher cost cap? We can talk about that. Part of it was lack of winterization of power plants. And this is all power plants, right? This is wind not having de-icing. This is natural gas plants. This is like, you know, controls at nuclear plants freezing, like everything, everything failed in some way. (laughs) So yeah, it was, I mean, a disaster. That's a a great overview. And so let me clarify when I start talking about value of lost load, obviously in this case, the gas plants, wind to a certain extent, nuclear coal, they all had their own problems, but 34 gigawatts of generation did not show up when we thought it would. So I'm not saying that there was any price that would have done that. Yeah. (laughs) Well, so, and, and not only that, but like you have on the demand side, customers need to be enrolled in demand response. Like if you're in a home and you're, you're just like a resi customer in Texas, you shut all your lights off, unless you were a gritty customer, you're not paid like for doing that. So there's also like a market liquidity or just like operationally, it's not like this $9,000 signal is sent to every endpoint. Right. You're on free nights and weekends in Texas when all the load (laughs) was shed Monday night, you're like 80 degrees in your home, like happy. Right. (laughs) Free Um, nights and weekends. It's like a Verizon plan in like mm -hmm. 2002. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Great stuff. But the, I mean, I like, I think it's an important point to bring up just because, you know, if that's what the market had said is the value of lost load, it may make sense. And I haven't seen kind of this analysis or anything. I'd love if, I don't know, I'm sure it, maybe it's out there somewhere or someone's working on it, I'm sure. But like what we actually determine the damages here were, and then sort of square that with this idea of value of lost load. And I think like everyone knows probably who's listening to this podcast, like all the different things that went wrong on the supply side, but us being the DER task force, like distributed, you know, demand side facing, I wanted to bring up Vol as a way into that discussion. I know it was a bit loose with with like how the market actually functions, but it is an important piece of that conversation. You know, maybe one thing on the Vol conversation that struck me is I, I did a little napkin math. And if you take sort of the average hours uh, that someone might be exposed to power outages over a 10 or 20 year period, and you look at a $9,000 per megawatt hour Vol, no one would ever buy a backup generator at $9,000 a megawatt hour. So like what Vol is saying is that the backup generator market doesn't exist, which is obviously wrong, of course, right? (laughs) So to me, it just kind of underlines, like what is this number and why are we using it when it's such an important factor in how we operate this system? And in in other markets, it it doesn't matter so much, right? Or as much, Um, but here it's, it's essential, right? And Duncan, can you explain to us why it doesn't matter as much in other markets? Sure. And uh, this is going to be the unfortunate segue into the energy and capacity discussion, which hopefully we'll keep <laughs> short. But yeah, in a lot of other markets, the price cap on energy isn't quite as important because the market has basically hedged energy already through buying reserve capacity. I don't know if it's actually called reserve capacity, but essentially we're paying plants to exist so that on that worst day on the grid, they have to be there. And therefore, energy prices don't go nearly as high. And we're not relying on super high, scarce energy prices to drive investment. We're really relying on these much more kind of stable, boring, annual 
capacity revenues to drive investment. So in PJM, where that's the case, for example, you know, certainly the value of loss load is equally academic and sort of probably determined out of thin air. And it's factored into LBMPs in some way that nobody understands, but it just doesn't have as much of an impact, right? Because we're not relying on $9,000 a megawatt hour events to actually get people to build plants. Right. And there's also a mandate in those markets that there's more like winterization, right? Like in theory, if Texas had a capacity market, they might have still not required winterization. We might have still seen all of these losses. Yeah, I think it, it sort of varies from market to market. And there, there's mandates and there's also penalties too, right? Mm-hmm. Another approach would be, well, we're not going to mandate anything, but if you don't show up, you're penalized. And we don't care why you don't show up. And I, I think it varies between market to market how exactly that works. Because I think in all of them, even if there are penalties, there's like force majeure and stuff. So it, it's complicated. <laughs> but that was one of the first debates I saw come out of this that personally, I don't find super interesting because I think any market would have failed <laughs> in this circumstance right. as far as I am concerned. Right. I actually looked at the capacity market. I, I think it's PJM. Maybe it's the other like New York ISO and New England ISO as well. But to Duncan's point, I think basically if you don't show up in a capacity market, you get a big penalty. And explicitly, I think in PJM, they say not having firm gas contracts does not qualify as force majeure. So like it basically is a mandate that the reason that gas generators in Texas didn't show up was they didn't have firm gas. So there was a gas shortage as well. They went to other purposes and the, the power plants were working. They just couldn't get gas. So if that had been the case in PJM, they could not have claimed force majeure. Oh, okay. So in PJM, it would actually be, if you're a gas plant getting capacity revenues and you can't get gas, it's your fault. And you, right. you don't get to get out of jail free card. Right. Interesting. Or just that your reason for not getting gas can't be that you didn't sign a firm gas contract. Base essentially is what it says. So you could, I mean, you could still mandate in Texas, right? Like in order to participate in the market, you need firm gas, like, or whatever it is, it doesn't necessarily have to translate it into a capacity market. But yeah, I just wanted to clarify that. Something else connected to this that I think is very related to kind of the thesis we laid out in the beginning of this, this idea that a failure in a different system, the gas system, then caused a cascading failure in the electricity system, right? Now, there were natural gas plants that had instrumentation issues because they weren't properly weatherized or winterized, but a lot of the failures were due to just not being able to get gas. Mm -hmm. When we think about resilience, right, the interconnectedness of these big systems and something happening all the way back to even the gas wells themselves, which were frozen, not supplying gas to the gas pipelines, which then couldn't supply gas to the gas plants, well, some were frozen and some and some were on rotating outages or which were yeah. really rotating, <laughs> um, right? Yeah. Like they weren't considered like critical loads because they're gas wells. But then there is kind of a question, right, of, of whether they should be critical. Yeah. And we should be careful here because like it wasn't like all gas distribution network didn't like universally fail. I think there was like Fair. some points where there was winterization problems and then some gas plants or coal plants that had the same problems. And then there were some, just because it was so cold, there was a lot, there was a huge demand for gas. And so if you didn't have for heating a firm yeah. contract as a plant, you just didn't have gas, but you could have operated. It was like a supply shortage, not necessarily like an infrastructure problem. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, I think all we can say is like much like the electricity grid, yeah, you can get supply issues and you can get transmission and distribution issues. Both happened right. in this other system, the gas system, which then ended up causing massive failure on the electricity system. So I don't know. To me, this is this was like a big, I'm not going to say wake up call, but it really opened my eyes to like the electricity system is is not an island in itself, right? It's very much connected yeah. to other energy systems. And then in the other direction, other systems are highly connected to the electricity system, right? Yeah. We had water shortages because of this, right? So other like critical centralized utility infrastructure was harmed by this. So I, I don't know. I think when just thinking about resilience and thinking about more extreme weather and how we design these systems, both markets, regulations, and engineering, like we're always talking about more than just the system we're talking about because yeah. it has inputs and outputs that also independent. It's so big. It's so big. And how do you create solutions that aren't like what ISO New England does, right? Which is just have dual fuel gas and oil plants. Where like when there's too much gas heating, you're like, let's just burn oil. Like <laughs> which fire up the oil burner. Which yeah. gives you which is the resilient side, right? But when we think about like how do we think for climate forward future thinking solutions, like what does that look like? It's not that issue doesn't exist in cold places. It absolutely does. It's just that because it's existed for so long, they've had to deal with it and their way of dealing with it was just oil. Right. Something that's important to discuss here and like why ultimately, Duncan, I agree with you that the capacity versus energy market discussion is not very interesting. And Colleen, to your point, like the Northeast deals with it a bit better. There's two sorts of blackouts that happen, right? One is, or maybe three, one is a supply shortage, like we saw in Texas. The, the grid was fine, but like there was no power to, to, to transmit. You also have the distribution or transmission grid going down, like wires being knocked out or whatever. And then you can have sort of like a failure mode where, you know, we have enough supply, but like a squirrel chews a line somewhere and you get like a rolling, there's like frequency and voltages go crazy or whatever it is, like which we've seen in the past before. Sort of like control and like grid right. management right. blackouts right. where right. it's all there, but for some reason it's not working. Yeah. And just the nature of like how interconnected and like crazy it is that we operate the grid in real time in the way that we do. But what we should note is like Texas was a supply problem. California and New York, or not even New York, just much of the Northeast within the six months leading up to the Texas blackouts also had catastrophic grid failures. California actually had two. First, they had a supply problem. Then they had public safety power shutoffs, which is a distribution problem. Distribution lines start fires. They have to shut down the line so they don't start fires. They have to institute rolling blackouts. In the Northeast, Hurricane Isaias uh, or Tropical Storm, our head of electricity, retail electricity, like he runs our power buying division at David Energy did not have power for seven days in Connecticut because of like the storm knocking out distribution wires. So, you know, I said on Twitter and I've said it like, you know, a bunch of times since, but when I say this is a system design problem, not a market design problem, it's like getting at that, well, New York, Connecticut, PJM, they're all capacity markets, but we see outages every year from windstorms. Colleen, to your point, like we're better at it, but not really. California is IRP, integrated resource planning, very centrally planned. They still had a supply shortage. 
and they also have delivery problems. Texas is an energy only market, catastrophic grid failure. So like the framework of each of those three grids, different climate regions, different market structures, they all experience failures just based on like the way the grid is actually built, which is in this like centralized big power plant down to load, you know, transmission and distribution network, right? And so these problems are going to continue. And we can talk about winterization, we can talk about whatever the hell we want, we can talk about capacity markets, but there are going to be more failures across the country because of the way in which we built our grid, like full stop. What's the common thread between all of those, between those, this energy market, capacity market, T and D outage, supply shortage? What's the common thread between all those outages you listed? It's weather, right? It's like the thing we can't control. It's such a good point. And I think, right, it's like when I say we're better in the Northeast, specifically on cold things, where we're not better, although I wouldn't necessarily say worse because it's not like this power fares particularly well in the Southeast when there's hurricanes. But like I was right, just listening to how, you know, the like ocean current, the Gulf Stream is like slowing down, which is going to just bring a lot more warm water to like our area and just bring a lot more hurricanes. Right. So basically we're going to see more of this here. California is going to see a lot more wildfires. They're probably going to see a lot more other things as well with heat waves, just generally. Texas is going to have to deal with like real hot summers and now potentially really cold winters and also hurricanes. Like everybody's just going to deal with all the weather problems yep. all the time. And they're happening frequently enough that you can't just be like, well, once every 50 years, it's okay if we lose power for like a week. Well, Colleen, I'm so glad you brought this up because you've given me a golden opportunity to beat up on the concept of reserve margins. <laughs> so I also, from Ben, he sent me an ERCOT study prepared by some other consulting group that no one's ever heard of, in which they determine the economically optimal reserve margin as being 11%. <laughs> Meaning like in our forecasts for how much demand there's going to be on a three-year outlook or whatever we're looking at, we say, okay, we actually want a bit more supply than that in case there's some overage. And using these concepts like vol, they determine 11% is the most. And that actually renewables have like shifted our operating reserve margin down because they're not like necessary operational, whatever. It's like a whole thing that they that they go into. And PJM, the way they've structured that market, the reserve margin right now is like 35%. And then in you know California, same thing. It, when you're more centrally planned, you have like higher reserve margins, more available supply. But the thing is, if the hurricane comes, like who cares about a reserve margin? You know, like, or, or like if you didn't winterize your grid, like the reserve margin isn't necessarily the problem. If there's wildfires, the reserve margin doesn't matter. So like looking at some of these, we got to talk about Warren Buffett's proposal where he's like, I'm just going to build a bunch of, of gas, you know, and you're going to give me $8 billion and, you know, it's going to be our backup. But it's like Texas sees hurricanes too. So that's not a solution for some of the types of outages that we see. Mm -hmm. They just did, right? What was it? Hurricane Harvey? Yeah. People were out yeah. of power for days. So here's my counter proposal, yeah. Duncan. Warren Buffett should give his own subsidy eight billion dollars we're not paying him he should just you know give it give it away for free to scale microgrids to build more natural gas backup generators <laughs> so i mean like it just goes to show like the fact that that is the proposal that came forward as like here's how we make the grid more reliable like more supply it's just not necessarily true so i'm gonna right. be the ders maximalist here and just be like 
build more durs. It's a big part of it. Yeah. I'm maybe not a maximalist, but I mean, definitely <laughs> not it's either. Been, I'm just, I'm just been mostly around. ignored. Right. And like you think about across this entire situation, obviously, you know, one like distributed supply is a good thing because it both helps fix supply shortages and T and D failures. Right. But also if we think about other types of DERS, like load control and AMI and all this stuff, like when emergencies happen, it helps you institute them way better. Like one thing we briefly touched on was like, what a disaster the rolling blackout management was, right? Where in a lot of places they weren't really rolling at all, or folks would be out of power for like 10 hours. It would come on and then shut right off in like 30 minutes, had no idea when they would be getting some of their centrally rationed power. Like they're in the bread line and it, it just like was moving randomly and then stopping. Right. But if you actually had lots of networked controllable loads. If we actually use smart meters to their full capabilities, we could have done this in a way better way. So that's another part of the DERS conversation here too, which is, and which is about resilience, right? When things fail, what do you do? And the worst way to deal with it is like shutting off huge sections of the grid with like manual levers and a guy in a pole truck, right? Like that's just, <laughs> right. and how, well, how are we still here? Like how, how is that how we do things? And it, it gets this idea that like, when we think about increasing resilience were very reactionary, right? Like it's okay. In California, we're like wildfires. And so we're like, okay, public safety power shutoffs. Just like turn, just turn those wires off. Like that's the solution to that one. All right. Next, next problem, like Texas. Okay. It's like, we didn't have enough supply. And so let's just like build winterized natural gas plants with like a firm gas contract. Okay. Check like Northeast, like, I don't know. I'm, we don't I, even have a solution. Well, I, all I can think of is like post like Sandy, everyone was like, okay, don't build generators on the ground floor, right? Like that was like mm-hmm. the takeaway from Sandy. It was well, like- Well, New York Rev came out of Sandy. And New York Rev. I mean- And then they were like, let's do front of the meter. And, you know, we forgot <laughs> that why DERS matter. <laughs> right. And so, and so first of all, right, none of these solutions are involving DERS directly, which they should be. But then also they're very siloed and very like, how do, here's a problem. How do I solve it? Rather than saying- what I think we you know, already sort of talked about, so I won't rehash it, but like there are lots of different problems happening that are all kind of getting worse. And like, you can't just take the one that you weren't expecting and be like, how do I fix this problem in like the one way that will fix it? It's like this need to think holistically about resilience yeah. is super key. And I think that's where DERS can, can help fit in because they have so much flexibility to like, to be supply. Like if you lose one big plant, like that plant's gone. But if you have a ton of small plants. Co-located to load. Co-located to load, then like you can lose some and it's not all gone. Wait, really? I have a really quick aside. Do you want to see a ton of small plants co-located to load? Yes. Oh, Oh, that's dope. Is that pot? It's probably (laughs) just tomatoes. Yeah, tomatoes and peppers and stuff. Duncan's a pot grower. (laughs) New York just legalized. He's got a beard. I'm worried about him. (laughs) <laughs> uh no that is that is not the case <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay so i know the next question here is like how do you incentivize more der's to be built beater 2.0 no i don't know how else okay I'm, I'm gonna have some fun with this one the very idea of like for 22 veter compensating der's with wholesale market mechanisms is a construct framed from 
our uh, uh, fascist overlords. <laughs> I'm, I'm messing around. It's like basically it's it's looking at it's trying to treat a dirt like a wholesale power plant, which it's not. Right. It's like you say, Duncan, it's behind the customer meter is what makes it interesting. It does have embedded in it this idea of if the grid goes down, that you have local supply. So it keeps that load online. Right. So even if we're like how much energy it's putting in at the LMP distribution grid, you know, uh, avoiding distribution grid infrastructures, we have never seen implemented is this kind of. Like, should it get a vol payment? Isn't that what it's doing? It's it's avoiding lost load. It, it could even be passive. It could be solar. So it's not participating in demand response, which actually gets that payment out in a scarcity event. You know what I mean? Like we're treating it like something it's not. Wait, but if it's in a wholesale market, isn't it kind of getting the vol if it's producing power during a scarcity event? Well, I mean, not if it's like you island it. I mean, the customers paid for it. Yeah, if you fire up your generator, like it's avoiding this lost load that the market is doing so much to try to deal with. But obviously, it was not compensated for that. It's it's outside of the system. And I think what's even more interesting is in a future system where this is like the, the Sunrun white paper from like a year ago, where a bunch of behind the meter resources can actually island a feeder so they can like communicate with each other and support each other. In that scenario, they also wouldn't be getting anything from the markets, even though they're powering the grid, just a small chunk of it. So hold on. If they're on the feeder, just because they're too localized, they like can't export beyond that. And so they don't get payments in the wholesale market during that time. Yeah. So the idea, right, is like Sunrun had this question of like, how do you use behind the meter resources to support more than just that house or more mm -hmm. than just that building? And basically the way you do it is you look at a big chunk of buildings, you island all of them together, you open the switch at the feeder level, and then you have all these solar inverters talking to each other and figuring right. it out, right? But those resources wouldn't be getting paid at that time. They're not like settling with the ISO for like islanding this feeder. So I think James's question is, should they be? Yeah, like they're, <laughs> they're, they're powering the grid, just not all of it. Right. <laughs> I mean, I think this is what we've talked about before with like, just not all of it. And then the question is like, how do you, we've talked about this before with like when you have a sort of community microgrid, which that's basically what they are, right? It's like a microgrid that's feeding multiple customers on a feeder. How do you do payments when you're off grid? Because if the grid were running, they in theory could be getting those payments, right? If the whole grid were up and we're saying when the grid goes down, there's a difference because it sort of switches into microgrid mode. And then it's like not part of the wholesale market, even though it's functionally providing even more value than it does when the whole grid is up. Because in addition to powering that area, it's like providing a really key resource. Mm -hmm. And so isn't that just then like an accounting issue? Like I'm trying to think of what the legality of it is, but like, is there any reason they shouldn't be getting that load eventually if they're like selling quote unquote to other customers? I really have no idea. I think it's like a question we haven't even begun to contemplate. That's my point. <laughs> Here's another crazy one, which it gets at the point of what I'm talking about, which is establishing a market-driven price for lost load, which is not the case when ERCOT just says it's 9,000 bucks. If you were to, and this is a bad idea, by the way, and I'm aware, I'm just having fun again. So when you look at a capacity market construct, if you're a generator and you don't show up, you get penalized, right? 
but that does nothing. What happens when the distribution grid gets knocked down? Like the utility has to fix it, but then they're going to rate base the customers to, to pay for whatever that upgrade was. Right? I would argue that there's there's penalties associated with outages, but. Okay, well, let's get into that. So what, what I'm saying is if you like flipped the market in the other direction and you said you penalized based on endpoint outages and you didn't even care, like you would actually bottom up establish a price for reliability because they would have, you know, you would go back to like a central, you know, vertical monopoly utility, probably you'd have to, if you're going to penalize them for supply shortages, as well as distribution outages, they would then have to go procure enough supply though, to avoid an outage. And they would also have to harden their grid in such a way to make sure people didn't lose power. I know that's a bad idea, but I'm saying like, that would be technically like a market design that values resilience for, you know, making sure the power doesn't go out. Like you have to guarantee say 99.5% uptime. And if you're go below that, you, you, you know, the regulators like penalize you. I don't think that's actually that wild, right? Like this is in line with kind of this like future of performance-based regulation for, for utilities that a lot of folks are talking about. I'm not sure if this specifically is like in those frameworks, but like yeah, it's 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 performance based, right? And I I think I think it's interesting. I think it's super interesting. I think like there are penalties that can be levied against utilities more for if they think there's something beyond like the force majeure, right? Like storms will happen and like things will happen, but like if they responded adequately or not. You gonna make me uh, bring up California? <laughs> I'm not saying it's always done. I'm saying it's disgust. It's a thing that happens. But what I think is really difficult is when you're paying for hardening, that hardening is required because of things outside of just the utility control. So like who should be paying for that? Right. And, and like, what is like you say 99.5, but like a lot of, a lot of utilities actually do have quite high reliability for the majority of their customers. It's just like, it feels very bad when you lose power. <laughs> right. So even if you only lose power, like once a year for a couple hours, like people really hate that. It's like the averages issue too, right? With like mm-hmm. Sadie and Safi and all this stuff. Like it's, those are aggregate numbers. So like mm-hmm. 98% of customers could have never lost power this year. And 2% of them could have been missing it for three weeks. Yeah. My neighborhood in Jersey, when I lived there, like I lost power like four to five times a year for like on a, on a hot day, it would just like go off for a little while. Like during Sandy, <laughs> it went off for a, a long time. And we were like always in the last neighborhoods to get power back. <laughs> I mean, this gets back to James's or whole original point, which is like value of loss loads different for everybody, but also frequency and duration of outages is different for everybody. You sort of like can't look at the distribution network as one thing. Yeah. So here's the point ultimately. And like Jed Trot does a really good job of talking about this and I mean, technically you should be able to sign like an SLA with your utility, like a service level agreement saying, I need uptime 99.9% of the time. You know, it's uh, I'm sure that's the case with like data centers or usually they build like two actual feeders into their whatever. But if I'm a residential customer, I mean, what if I'm working from home and I'm a small business and I I'm in the middle of a deal that's going to, I'm going to close for, you know, a million bucks and my power goes out. I, I have no recourse. So like what I mean by creating a market for liability, there was some mandate around reliability. 
endpoint users could sue the utility for the value of their lost load, right? Like, so that's how you actually determine, you know, you can't have like ERCOT hiring a consultant saying, oh, here's this wide range of possibilities, the value, let's just pick $9,000. Whether it's ERCOT or the Northeast or California or whatever, the actual market construct is, that's what I talk about what I mean. Like it's a system design problem because they're all sort of obey the same common themes. So to your earlier point though, Colleen, you said who pays for it right now, it's just the user. They pay for their resilience and then they pay for the grid. So it's just like an added cost on top of them that the system does not factor. So what you're essentially saying though, if I like think about this, is that if people had different like reliability metrics with the utility, would I as a utility then like start shutting off? Now let's say I have like smart meters and control. Am I like shutting off the customers who don't pay me higher amounts in order to like shed load? Like, is that how I decide how to shed load? I'm like, well, this, <laughs> I have this SLA with this small business owner, but like not with, you know, this other small business down the street because they don't want to pay me as much. And so like, I'm just going to shut their load off when I have to curtail people. I mean, technically, if you wanted a market price for reliability, yeah, right? Like, yeah, no, I'm the I know, rolling I'm... outages should have, <laughs> if you're talking about economically optimal, as, as ERCOT does, you should have done the rolling outages where they would have done the least economic damage or social damage or whatever, whatever it may be. Well, economic versus social is the is the question, right? Because basically what happened in ERCOT, the reason there weren't really like rolling quote unquote outages is that they had such crazy power loss. And then they had like the communities with hospitals and stuff and they those ones got power and they like didn't have enough load to rotate. Yeah, they, they were down to like priority one. There was no like, yeah, we have priorities six through two <laughs> up and we'll rotate those. They were like at the last level. But- that's kind of like a switching gear and controls problem too, right? And how much we want to invest in the grid there. Because what I heard from friends in Houston is like, yeah, it's crazy. A lot of stuff in downtown is just like on like empty office buildings because it's on the same feeder as the hospital. You know what I mean? So like the, our resolution in determining it is not is not very high. And that's not a technological constraint. It's like an investment and sort of desire like us wanting to have that degree of resolution. Like we could technically it's like a planning build... for priority one only. Right. Right. It's just not how we think about things. We're just like, Oh, it's an outage, you know? So I just do that to kind of stir the pot. Like I know some, some people are like, this kid's a moron. Like this is a terrible idea. <laughs> it's a terrible idea from the perspective of like, I think how we all like would like the grid to function and from an equity perspective. But if you're Texas and you're like, we love markets and we just want to be like gung ho on markets. Like it's, it is sort of like the inevitable, like far reaching end of that idea. Kind of don't is what's crazy. Well, that's what we're like, learning is that they don't really, they don't really love markets. They like love they like the love optimal markets. reserve margin is set by like, what's one Sigma off the mean, you know, it's like the dumbest, <laughs> like it's, it's very central. That's centrally planned. Like when you actually think about vol and, you let the market decide what gets built after that, but the framework is like fairly bureaucratically driven, as are all power markets. I feel like your thought experiment, it points out the hip hypocrisy of this, right? right? That if you're going to use a value of lost load, like you actually would need price discovery. And if we don't want that, well, then we actually have to like 
decide to build in resilience into the system, but we can't have some like fake blend of the two where like we're getting neither. I think that's really interesting. Something you just said triggered, I think, another discussion point that we wanted to hit. The point about markets, right? I think both the discussion about value of lost load and how bureaucratic and sort of like just odd it is, and then also what has happened since this crisis in reaction to it in Texas. I think an interesting lesson here is that like, I don't think Texas is as nearly free market as they claim to be. No. So I want to point out a couple things that have happened since the crisis. So one, we're seriously considering this Warren Buffett plan, which I will very quickly describe as just a sole source capacity market, right? We're going to pay Berkshire Hathaway $8 billion to build a bunch of gas plants that are both winterized and have on-site LNG storage and sit there and never participate in the energy markets so as not to hurt anyone else who's, you know, (laughs) hoping to realize high prices. This plan is obviously not one of a free market mindset. The other then, right, which is not a plan, but is real now, is SB3. SB3 passed the Senate, and it does a lot of things, one of which is it forces wind and solar to buy ancillary services and replacement power. Like this is big news. Now, if you do the math and some folks have, like, I don't think this is going to crush the wind and solar markets, but it is ridiculous, right? Like this is not, ancillary services are demand driven. No generator needs to like show up with their own. It, it, it literally just doesn't make sense. It's entirely political. This sort of uh, seizing this opportunity to like stick it to renewables. So I, I think like what we're realizing is two months ago, there was this common refrain that like, A, Texas is the land of free energy markets and B, look how well it's working. And like, I don't think that's true. Nor is it true in the capacity markets, nor is it true in the bizarro markets of California. But I don't think it's true in Texas either. It's just as much about political and cultural and social capital as it is anywhere else. And in fact, we're seeing a more, I think like a very kind of like violent reaction to this sort of intellectually right? Where we're just throwing out markets and we're considering it, considering whatever fix has enough like sort of political capital behind it to, to get jammed through. So, so this is one of my big takeaways from this. There's a whole flurry of other legislation that has quickly been passed too. I wrote a bunch of it down in our show notes, HB 11, HB 12, 13, 16, 17, like all this stuff we just passed, not to mention like all of the PUC resigned, every single yep. person. It's crazy what came out of this. And so maybe- Ignoring my little rant about like Texas versus everywhere else, because that's just like a bone I had to pick. Maybe it would be interesting to discuss, like, how is this going to impact the overall politics of energy transition? Because like we're seeing some crazy stuff already and we're like four weeks out. What do we think are like the narratives that come out of this, the opportunism that comes out of this, like socially and culturally? What do normal people in Texas think right now? Not like nerds, but like, are people blaming wind? Are people blaming gas? Are people thinking about DERS? Like, this is big, I think. There's a lot to unpack here. A non-Texas, N of one lens, my mom, who lives in Boston, (laughs) was like, was, you know, talking to me about Texas. And then she started talking about wind. And I was like, so do you think wind was the problem? And she's like, oh, I know there are other problems like X, Y, and Z. And like, my mom's not an energy person. Like, she's a smart 
person, but she reads, you know, just like the news and watches the news. She's not like deep diving on RTO Insider. Um, and I was like happily surprised that she knew that it like wasn't just a wind problem. She kind of like understood a little bit. For me though, the big concern is less like, do people think it's wind or whatever? Like, I don't think people pay that much attention to what is powering their electricity. And I don't think that they will really think much about it. I worry about electrification. I worry about the impact it has on electrification, right? We want to electrify everything, even though gas is hard to get for your car in a storm. And even though there were like some positive EV stories, right? Of people like staying warm, you don't need to worry about carbon monoxide poisoning with an EV. Like that's a big thing. Like, but I still think there's this like idea that you're like more trapped. There's no power. How do I get power for my vehicle? Yeah, you're you're like tethered to something. Even though like let's all like let's not forget like post every storm that ever happens, like getting gas is a nightmare and a lot of people run out of gas on the side of the road. It's not like gas is an easy thing to get in a disaster zone. Or similarly, the point that's always brought up with heat is like Right. Yeah, you can have a gas furnace, but that doesn't mean the controls, ignition and blower on it are working without power. But are you going to get a backup generator and keep your gas heat and then be able to heat your home fully because you don't need a lot of power for it versus like, Mm -hmm. can you like, can you run your electric heat on a generator? It's probably hard to. Yeah, probably hard to. I I think this is a really important discussion and it's a hard one. And it's also not just a technical one. Like, I guess this is really what I'm concerned with. We can have the discussion of like, yeah, well, if you have gas heat, the, your your blower only needs, you know. Yeah, if you insulate your home and you get a cold climate heat pump and you do X, Y, and Z, like you can make it happen. But like, try explaining that to a. But homeowner. like, what do people think? <laughs> Just like, what do normal people think? And I think they're probably like, shit. Like, I'm losing power all the time, and you want me to like make my car run on power, and my heat run on power, and my cooking run on power, and my hot water run on power. We have to actually convince people this is a good idea. Can I flip the narrative around? Do it. So I agree, Colleen, it's a concern. Today, I'm not concerned because I think there aren't a lot of people who know what electrification really is. (laughs) So like the very minority population, like the average person isn't like, wait, but when I like change my heat to heat pumps, like, you know, and are following that because I mean, there aren't a lot of people necessarily buying EVs even yet. So I'm not, I'm not worried about like the political narrative around it. I am worried about say like the individual buyers to Duncan's point, flipping it around though, the politically strong narrative here is we need to electrify. Thus resilience should be the primary thing that we're focused on because as everyone converts the EVs, as everyone converts the heat pumps, as our municipalities bus and snowplow systems are based on electric vehicles, as everything gets electrified, when the grid goes down, we're, we're screwed. So we need more local resilience. I hope that we've established through this podcast that you can't, as the grid is currently built, guarantee resilience, right? Like to me, at the end of the day, I've tried to be unbiased about it, but the only way that you build a resilient grid is is you put supply right next to load, right? Like with DERS. So our post storage and natural gas generators, if you don't want to lose power, that's the strongest, that's the best way to do it. Like if that's your, that's what you value most. So my counterpoint is yes, individual buyers, there's a concern that they'll be worried about losing their power. No, I don't think there's a political narrative that we should be concerned about because just not enough people think about electrification. But yes, we can use the idea of electrification, which in certain 
very politically motivated circles that are actually driving a lot of legislation and stuff like our world, electrification should push resilience to the forefront of the conversation. So that's where I mean, like we, we can actually use this opportunistically to show how important resilience is. I obviously very much agree there. It's, I think it's very clear. The more we want to rely on electricity, the more resilient our electricity system has to be. And well, we're not just talking about Netflix and our computer, but we're talking about, you know, our climate control and our transportation. Like it just, it's enunciated, right? I do really think there are social and political implications though. Like um, we're trying to encourage, like you mentioned, municipal bus fleets to go electric. I imagine the bus fleet managers, if they're freaked out about power outages, are going to push back. Or in the, like in the corporate sector as well, right? Like it's not just like if homeowners are willing to get an induction stove, it's like, is Anheuser-Busch willing to like try out electric trucks? And I'm not saying this has impacted that or not, but I, I really do think like power outages like really ripple through people's thinking, right? And like to Colleen's point earlier, it's like you get one of them for two hours and it feels like the end of the world, even though that's still like five nines reliability, right? <laughs> like- and I think you just really, you risk losing support for this idea of, of electrification if people start to believe, you know, the grid is unreliable. So I, I think I'm, I'm basically backing up your point, but just from a perspective of me believing we need to push electrification and seeing this as something that could really get in the way if unaddressed. Right. 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 And resilience like would offer, I think, James, to your point, like would offer a counter narrative to that. If you can like show how you can change resilience, you can like flip it from saying like, okay, this could actually be beneficial to you because like we electrify these things and now we have more tools to like keep power up in more neighborhoods when there's an outage and like that's actually beneficial. But if we don't have the right market mechanisms or lack of a better word, like to value that resilience and to keep things running <laughs> when there's actually an outage with the DERS, then that's not beneficial. It's just sort of electrification that isn't like providing that additional value that it could provide to the grid. Right. You know, to your point about like all this electric stuff that you could have, like a heat pump with solar plus storage on site, I'd argue is more resilient than a boiler that relies on the natural gas distribution infrastructure or a propane truck coming in and, you know, installing a new backyard. Cause like that's, there's a whole supply chain behind it that can always be disrupted. Frequently is like this happens with diesel generators literally all the time. Right. Yeah. Like I'm agreeing with you, Colleen, you just, you can actually turn electrification into a positive in that sense as like more resilient, not the opposite. Yeah. It, it goes in both ways. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, we can produce electricity on site. We can't produce natural gas on site. No. Do you have a Derek in your backyard? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, some people in Texas might, but <laughs> that's true. That's true. No, I, I think that's a really fascinating point. Yeah, it's like it can both hurt it, but it can also really help it, right? Like if you're willing to go big on resilience, mm -hmm. electrification's that much more attractive, and that's I think that's pretty interesting. I have one more point I wanted to hit in this discussion, and it goes back to the system design problem and resilience and all of this. You know, I've talked a bunch about how we engineer systems for conditions that we can't really look back at, right? Like where historical data on temperature or frequency of storms like isn't useful anymore. I'm not going to get into that in a broad way, but there's one specific element of this I wanted to talk about. So in our sort of energy system decarbonization world, 
we often rely on these big energy system optimization models to inform our thinking. And the best of them from folks like Chris Clack or Jesse Jenkins, or the worst of them from unnamed Stanford professors, we, uh, <laughs> we have these computational systems that ingest a bunch of historical load data, understand all of the tools we have our dis- at our disposal, how much they cost, what their performance characteristics are, and then have solvers that figure out, okay, what's the optimal mix of all this stuff? And, you know, they even can consider, you know, what's the current grid and when will those assets need to be replaced? So they can, they can do this big math problem to figure out what's optimal. And what I'm really interested in, and this ends up framing all of our thinking, right? Like trickles down from the highest academic levels down to like, what should we be doing? And the thing I'm really interested in is do any of these models try to think about what demand could be? Now, some of them think about it with regard to electrification, because that's like easier math, right? Like, okay, here's how many MMBTU of gas we're burning for heat. So it translates to this much electricity for a heat pump. But like, what about when LA County is 120 degrees and the historical data doesn't show that, or at least doesn't show its frequency accurately? Like, do we actually have first principles driven demand forecasts built into these optimization models? And if we do not, and we're unable to test it under harsher scenarios, which are like gonna happen, right? Like, what do these things mean? Duncan, are, are you suggesting that three sigmas in my analysis is not enough on a bell curve looking at historical data? Well, yeah, I'm suggesting the curve is kind of like meaningless. I what think is that's the historical that's data. blasphemy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The historical curve is, is meaningless. Texas didn't happen on the historical curve. Tails are fat and we look at them as thin. I mean... It's uh, it's the same in grid planning. Yeah, it's the extremes and their frequency, right? Like, because we can even say, well, Texas had these other cold snaps and whatever, nineteen ninety eight and two thousand eleven, but like every time we had one, the thinking was, okay, we were not going to have another one of these for thirty years, right? So, like, even if we've experienced it before, we continually think we won't again for a long time. And I, I mentioned LA County in one hundred twenty degrees because that's what happened this summer. This is one of my biggest concerns, which is like, we so heavily rely on historical data for everything we do. And the weather is like the most sort of like first principles sort of input to all of this. Right. And like, how are we going to deal with this? And climate models are so have such wide bands of uncertainty that like, it's also just really overwhelming and like unclear how you would use forecasted changes rather than historical data in any way that would give you any sort of certainty other than being like, this feels like a good number, you know, sort of like the way we got our vol. Like, yeah. Just <laughs> throwing arbitrary. No, and Duncan, I was being, I was being facetious by the way. Like I'm saying we take the historical weather models and we do like three sigmas off the mean or four or five, you know, but we see 10, we see 50 sigma events. You know what I mean? Like, Ultimately, it's what I mean about like a systems design, the way in which we think about systems is rooted in exactly what you just talked about. It's this false precision of like, right, right. It's like economically optimal efficiency. And that's what I say. Like I, in that article I wrote, I'm like, we need to stop praying to the God of efficiency. And we need to think about resilience as being the most important thing here and they are sort of diametrically opposed on like 
almost like philosophically, like you plan to build in redundancy, like resilience that costs money versus just like, let's, let's try and make this cost as little as possible. Cause what's crazy is that when you think about efficiency, ERCOT was a very efficient market until it wasn't. So in three days, and then it just blew up. It yeah. went from the average price over the past decade for power went from $30 a megawatt hour to 42. Wait, so you're saying this week and a half of activity yes. rose, rose the 10 year average by 12 bucks a megawatt yes. hour. Yes. So that's what the, the, the tail is oh, there. The that's fat crazy. Tail, the, the fat tail, the 20 Sigma event is there, whether you want to model it or not. And it's going to come around. Just so I understand the tail event increased the decades average by like yes. 33%. Yes. I think there was some other crazy stats. And the, this is partially because regulators decide to force the $9,000 per megawatt hour after a certain number of hours is supposed to drop to 2000. They decided to waive that in the middle of the crisis to make sure as much load was responding and supply mm -hmm. as well. So there's some other crazy stats. Like I may be slightly off, but the order of magnitude is 10 bucks. And something like generators were paid out more in like that week or that, you know, of 2021 than they were in like the three years preceding or something, you know, it's some crazy, like it, it was really astronomical, like what that event actually did. And so the question that I really have for us, like for the, the political aspects to this is like, can we as like a collective say, we're going to plan for the worst events. We're going to do our models based on 2011 in Texas, 2021, all the other poor events prior to that. Like, can we frame it from that perspective? We're like, we really don't want that to happen again. So we're going to spend extra money to make sure it doesn't. I don't know if we can. I think people are just going to buy DERS like when they're tired of it. Like, I, I really do. Like, <laughs> Each time the power goes out is another convert. You know what I mean? Like people are like, well, screw this. This is the fifth time I'm buying a generator. Each time the power goes out, another 20-year asset gets purchased and installed. Right. Just like chips away at the system. Mm -hmm. I mean, right. this is, I feel like that's a good thing, but I also like don't like the idea of the system. It's, it's so complicated, but yeah, no, I agree with you. It's like these like diametrically opposed philosophies of, of efficiency versus resilience. I think what's really interesting about it is like, where we are grappling with that same exact question is more so on like globalism right now, right? Like American society, especially post COVID, but before it too, like, I mean, this is, you could argue like sort of the biggest driver of our politics right now, but it's the same question, right? About like maximizing efficiency through like specialization versus building for resiliency. I don't know if socially we're going to be able to ponder this from an energy perspective or not. I'd hope so, because I think it's a really worthwhile topic. But there is clearly an appetite to think about this socially, maybe just in a different, more about manufacturing and goods. But I would like to see more of that question being pondered, right? It's super important, especially uh, when we have, you know, multi-trillion infrastructure bills that are imminent, right? Like, mm -hmm. I'd love- oh, God if we started thinking about this now, because <laughs> like the next decade is going to have a lot of spending and it's going to lock in a lot of assets. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Like and our, a lot our of future designs. is going to, I mean, and this is like the crazy thing about like, I think trying to build for climate, like the speed at which you have to build means like you're going to live with your decisions, right? Like whatever we build, we're going it, to, it's just like what we built in the, the new deal era. 
is like the Rural Electrification Act is like what we live with now. Like the Tennessee Valley yeah. Authority is what we live with now, right? We're going to do that again. And like, I hope we're thinking about this stuff the right way. That's a really important and scary yeah. point. Like, <laughs> I know, I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> I think, I mean, I think the positive there is like, at least they're talking about like direct incentive payments for batteries and stuff like that. But your point on COVID and, you know, a lot of what we're seeing is just most of these institutions were built in like the 30s and 40s. And we haven't really, you know, whether it's like the highway system as well, like building supply chains abroad or like all these questions are kind of coming to a head at the same time across a lot of different systems that we've built, you know, over the past 50 years. So I, I like to think that the grid as an institution, when I talk about how wholesale, you know, whether it's a capacity market or energy only market, like they all kind of emerged out of how we decided the technology we had in our hands, starting say with the rural electrification act, we now have fundamentally different technology. So like we have the opportunity to build institutions that look very different. So hopefully like the answer is sort of inevitable over time, but there is the possibility that we just make like the wrong political decision and it either sets us back or it puts us on a course that we can't get off of. The fact that we have all these new technologies available, like we can electrify, we can install DERS, like solar and storage and geothermal and backup generators will ultimately like, I mean, win out, right? Mm -hmm. Like we built the grid the way we did because we had the technology that we did and it took course over an 80 year period. And now we have different technology and we'll build things differently, like is my hope. And because we valued efficiency, right? I mean, that was like- Well, we had to, because we had to value thermodynamic efficiency. Like a, a huge coal plant is way more efficient than a small coal plant. You know what I mean? Like Yeah, and a huge coal plant with a with a high capacity factor, because there's a bunch of network load, is even better than the other, the huge coal plant serving one load. Yeah, that was like the, the sort of like driving physics of the system. Right, like the physics drove that ultimately. The techno-economics like emerged out of that. And I think they're different now. So like, it's going to look different in 50 years. So that's my, that's my meta Vaslav Smil, uh, you know. <laughs> no, I, th I think that's a great point. Yeah. Like I brought up this point of like, yeah, what we decided to build in the thirties is what we lived with for the next <laughs> 90 years. And what we decide to build now as all this stuff is crumbling and failing is what we're going to live with for the next 90 years after that. But the difference is like, yeah, durs don't listen to anybody. I was kind of offering a counterpoint and saying that like we made the right decision because it was the only decision. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm not disagreeing. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just saying like the, I guess the decisions we make today like are not nearly as fixed because if people don't like the mm -hmm. outcomes of those decisions, they'll go and do their own thing. It's a very different dynamic in that regard, but I do think it leads one to believe the decisions are just as important as ever because Personally, like what I don't want is like the big grid to be like burdened by like bizarre political decisions of the 2020s. And then therefore it's performance and outcomes being poor, but then like <laughs> the lucky few having their own grids, right? Like that's just, I don't know. That to me is, that to me is like Blade Runner. That's like some weird, like dark future we don't want. Yeah, no, we don't. But if let's imagine we paid Warren Buffett $8 billion, you know what that does? That accelerates grid defection. 
Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's like, that's kind of what I'm saying, right? Like, which is why we shouldn't pay Warren Buffett $8 billion. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah, we should. Yeah. Yes. Step one, don't do that. Right. <laughs> James, your point is well taken. Like, to the extent that politics does mess up how we do this, it will enable that grid defection, which I think to Duncan's point is like, gonna make it this like weird haves, haves nots. It's gonna like create this this weird system. And so we should just try to, you know, all do the do, best we do can. what we're doing, promote, <laughs> promote building good things, promote DERS. Get your picket signs and uh, <laughs> go out in front of your senator. It's actually, it's like August recess. I was just talking to someone, they were like, yeah, everything's happens in August because like they go on recess. That's when they talk to their constituents. So like, make sure you're tell every, telling everyone to like go out and, you know, make sure they're influencing like that, you know, whatever bills are going to be passed when they, when they come back. I don't know. Maybe I've just, I just read uh, the foundation trilogy by Isaac Asimov and he talks about oh, like psycho history and kind of how it's all inevitable at the end. And I'm just kind of on that, uh, train right now where i'm like even if we pay warren buffett eight billion bucks it's going to be the same outcome <laughs> just like texans are going to buy generators <laughs> i don't know is that a good well, place i to think stop? we'll leave it at that <laughs> <laughs> dr task force psychohistory is on our side <laughs> oh my god all right dr task force thanks for listening Make sure to use the acronym VOL at your next energy event of your choice and see who the true energy nerds are. This is going to be a big year for the DER task force meetups. We've already had five meetups in 2021 talking about heat pumps, EVs, project finance, co-ops, and transactive energy. Please remember to subscribe to our newsletter on our website, DERtaskforce.com, follow our Twitter, and leave the occasional review on our podcast so we can get the word out to all the other people yearning for endless discussions of DERs. Last but not least, continue the conversation on Slack. Talk to you all soon.